You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and a volunteer for the LLS. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us for this very important podcast episode to discuss what healthcare professionals need to know in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. I want to reflect for a minute about COVID-19. This has been such a dramatically challenging everyone throughout our country and throughout the world, and it really has dramatically impacted the lives of patients, people who are being treated for cancers, and of cancer survivors. And I think I also want to acknowledge, too, that personal note, it has affected all of us in some fashion or another, either in our professional capacity or our personal capacity, uh, just our lives. And so with that in mind, this is such a wonderful opportunity. And uh, today we're going to be joined by Dr. Tobias Hull, who is the chief of the Infectious Disease Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Dr. Hull, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Start out by asking some of the questions that I've wondered about, and I know some of the fellows have asked me about also, and it's such a good opportunity to start with some very basic ones. What can you tell us about this family of viruses, and what makes COVID-19 different than other viruses, and what makes it so dangerous? Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak with the LLS Society and, and healthcare professionals. I think we've all been caught a little bit off guard with the speed and the spread of coronavirus and how quickly it has impacted our lives and our patients' lives. Uh, COVID-19 belongs to the same family of viruses that includes the etiologic agents of MERS and of SARS back in 2003. And they're also circulating coronaviruses for that can cause upper respiratory tract illness in our patients. What is really unique about COVID-19 is the severe range of symptoms that it can cause in our patients, including the life-threatening complications of pulmonary inflammation, as well combined with the ease with which the virus seems to spread in the general population. So what gives this virus, as opposed to some others, both of those abilities? You know, this may be on a molecular level, but what gives it the ability to spread like that? And also, why the lungs in particular? The cells that line the airway and lungs express the receptors that the virus utilizes to get inside those cells and replicate. So the target tissue, in effect, is dictated by the interaction between the viral spike protein and the receptor called ACE2, which is found in the epithelial cells in the lung alveoli and also along the respiratory tract. So part of it is simply this biology. We also know that viral particles are highly infectious when they're produced in the lung and that the virus is primarily transmitted by respiratory droplets. So when somebody coughs or sneezes and aerosolizes the virus six to 10 feet in front of them, that is a very effective route of transmission. We also know that other cells and tissues in the body express receptors for the virus, for example, the heart, and that 
may explain some of the cardiac complications, the, the carditis that we see in some subset of patients, and also cells in the gastrointestinal tract expressed a receptor for the virus. Some very recent work has shown that virus that's found in the GI tract, though, does not appear to be infectious when it is placed on cell cultures. And so we don't think that the fecal route is a major route of transmission for this virus. Well, so quick question. Obviously, there's been discussion that asymptomatic patients can spread this virus. Firstly, do you have an estimate how many people are asymptomatic and how do they spread it? I think the mechanism of spread is very similar to symptomatic patients. We've learned that patients have a high viral load in their respiratory tract and airways typically about one day before they become symptomatic. So this becomes a period during which a patient with very few or no symptoms can transmit the virus to another human. So the basic mechanism, I think, is fundamentally similar in terms of spread between an asymptomatic and a symptomatic individual. There is also the possibility, of course, that um, patients can transmit the virus to an inanimate surface and that an individual picks up that virus if they touch that surface several minutes or perhaps a few hours later, and then by touching their face or mucous membranes can transmit the virus that way as well. But the main route of transmission is through direct respiratory droplets and through aerosols. Let me uh, start off by asking you just about your clinical experience now at Sloan Kettering. When you've been seeing patients who are immunocompromised, and I actually want to drill down into this a little bit further, but how has the clinical course been different than it may be for other patients? Yeah. I, no, that's an, that's an excellent question. And at Sloan Kettering, like many hospitals in the New York area, we've been treating hundreds of patients, you know, with COVID-related disease and continue to do so. The difference is the vast majority of our patients are patients who have an underlying cancer. And I have to say that we're seeing very similar results in patients with cancer than in patients who do not have cancer, with just a few notable exceptions. First of all, the vast majority of patients with cancer who develop COVID-19 are able to be safely managed at home. Only a small percentage require hospital admission, and that's quite similar to the general population. With regard to patients who are highly immunocompromised, I worry generally about the initial phase of the viral infection. That is when there is high viral replication in the lung, whether a weakened immune system leads to a more profound viral replication or an inability to control this as well as a non-immunocompromised cancer patient. That's an area that we are actively studying. The second phase of the disease that I think has gotten a lot of press relates to this cytokine syndrome or this exuberant inflammatory response that occurs in a small subset of patients with COVID-19. Keep in mind that the vast majority of patients do not get sick from the second phase of disease, but these are the cases that typically go on to require significant medical attention and possibly also mechanical ventilation. We are trying to parse out which cancer patients are most likely to progress to this phase and how their cancer might interact in order to either prevent or facilitate this phase of the disease. I am particularly concerned about patients with leukemia and lymphoma who are in the most active stages of their disease. 
who have a significant injury to their immune system because of the underlying leukemia and lymphoma. That immune injury may facilitate greater viral replication, but it is not clear how that immune injury will harmful or beneficial or perhaps neutral in the context of cytokine storm syndromes that we see in the second phases of the illness in a minority of patients. So it's unclear right now how these attributes will lead to clinical outcome. At this stage, what is being seen in preliminary data around the world is that patients with leukemia and lymphoma do get hospitalized at slightly higher rates than cancer patients without them, and they do require oxygen at a slightly higher rate. This data is very preliminary, and we don't have good outcome data in terms of thinking about mortality or other adverse outcomes. I want to go back, actually, if you would, you started talking about the phases of infection, and I sort of, I pictured that there may be some common phases for people with COVID, and then they they may diverge. So what else can you tell us about that? The common phase that occurs is simply that the virus is acquired and that virus can replicate in the upper respiratory tract and perhaps also uh, within the lower respiratory tract, forming a pneumonia. However, most patients, including most cancer patients and most patients with leukemia and lymphoma, are able to clear the virus without significant clinical symptoms. Where people diverge is typically in the second week of illness, where a small subset of patients, 10% or less, that these are patients who require hospitalization, they have a dysregulated immune response, often termed cytokine storm. This regulated immune response may facilitate ongoing viral replication in the lung, and this creates a dysfunction of the lung and an inability for these patients to oxygenate properly, which requires high-flow oxygen and, in some cases, a mechanical ventilation. So this second phase of the illness is distinct in that only a small subset of patients, including cancer patients with COVID, progress to this stage of the illness. One of the greatest mysteries for us as scientists is to try and figure out why some patients progress to this illness, but the majority of patients do not. And that has been really probably one of the most important questions we're trying to answer right now in infectious diseases and oncology. So actually, I want to dissect it a little bit because I was thinking about the patients. I'm a generalist, and so I treat people with hematologic malignancies and solid tumors. And here's the question I wanted to ask you. We have patients who have neutropenia. We have those who have lymphopenia. We have some that have a defect in their immunoglobulins. Do you get a sense, probably more generally, and then in terms of COVID, how each of those interacts with viral infections and, again, with the COVID infection? We don't have very clear data yet. We don't have any published studies in this regard. My general thoughts are that, in particular, that CD8 positive T cells, which act against viruses and are cytolytic, are likely to be highly important for viral clearance in the initial stage of the response, you know, within the first 7 to 14 days of the uh, antiviral response. We have not really appreciated a significant role for neutrophils in the early antiviral response, and that is similar to a lack of function for other respiratory viruses. Now, many patients with leukemia and lymphoma 
have diminished infection-fighting cells in all the three major lineages, the red cell lineage, the myeloid cell lineage, or the innate immune cell lineage, and the lymphoid cell lineage. And I think, in general, we've always thought of lymphoid cells and K cells and CD8 T cells as being central to controlling viruses. And my thinking is, is that patients with defects in that lymphoid lineage compartment are most likely to have difficulties in terms of controlling viral replication in COVID. So in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic, I, mean, I wrote down here a number of different, you know, sort of approaches to therapy. Some are, you know, adjuvant therapy doses, adriamycin, cytoxin, and taxol. And then I wrote down R-CHOP for rituxan and CHOP for lymphoma. I wrote down autologous transplant and allogeneic transplant. And I, uh, knowing that we don't have the data yet, but what are some of your clinical observations in terms of are, are certain groups of these patients at higher risk and why? We don't have the full clinical data yet. We, just to put this in perspective, it's April 14th today, and the very first patient who was admitted at Memorial Sloan Kettering was on March 14th, so exactly a month. Just keep in mind that how quickly this epidemic has evolved. Having said that, I think even as, a, as an ID specialist, I think that if a patient with leukemia and lymphoma has a life-threatening cancer, they need to be treated for the cancer to the best of our abilities, because that is the most immediate life-threatening process. And that rule still holds true whether COVID is around or not around. I think that's very, very important to state. COVID is less dangerous to patients than an acute, untreated leukemia or may pose a less significant danger than a treatment delay which could jeopardize, you know, the course of a leukemia or lymphoma. So I think that's a very, very important point to make. I will also state right now that despite many, many claims in the press that the standard of care right now for COVID-19 is supportive, there are no proven antiviral or immune modulatory strategies. We, like many other centers, are engaged in clinical trials to answer questions about antiviral drugs. There has been a lot of press regarding remdesivir, which is a nucleoside analog, you know, a drug that directly inhibits viral replication. And there's been a lot of interest in hydroxychloroquine as a potential therapy which has immunomodulatory properties and also quite conflicting results so far about its potential efficacy. So there are no proven therapies at this time. And I think an underlying principle here is that we have to treat life-threatening cancers and then adjust to new realities and then deal with infections as best we can while we treat the underlying cancer. In instances where we can delay cancer therapies, for example, if an autologous transplant will not materially affect the course of cancer therapy, if it is delayed by several months, I think a delay is a reasonable thing to do. These are certainly difficult decisions, and the beauty of an institution like yours, and, and I think for many of us, is having that, that team approach. I wanted to ask you about cytokine storm, which you've mentioned, because I think in oncology and in oncology infectious disease, expertise has developed, particularly in the last several years in the setting of CAR-T therapy. 
for patients that are profoundly ill now with COVID-19, does reversing or treating cytokine storm provide benefit? Yeah, so I get asked a lot of questions about, you know, blocking specific cytokines and whether that will help patients with COVID-19. And I'll just simply say that I don't know the answer to that question. I have had a lot of experience treating cytokine storms in the context of CAR T-cell therapy for B-cell and other malignancies, but I think that the two situations are not directly comparable. It's very well established in the CAR T-cell world that the IL-6, for example, which is one of the major drivers of the cytokine storm, is highly pathological. And we also know that patients develop very, very high IL-6 levels during the therapy. The major difference here is that in the CAR T-cell patient, there is no active microbial replication. It is a pure sterile inflammation. And drugs that were designed to treat the cytokine storm and have been approved for CAR T-cell therapy are drugs that are quite effective in model in human disease associated with sterile inflammation. For example, tocilizumab, an antibody that is directed and blocks the IL-6 signaling, was initially a, or has approval also to treat rheumatologic diseases, which are also forms of sterile inflammation. A warning about these drugs is they make patients more susceptible to specific infections. So how do we extrapolate that to COVID-19? COVID-19 is an active viral infection, and even during the cytokine storm phase of the disease, we are uncertain how much viral replication is going on in the lung because it's not considered safe to do a bronchoscopy at this time due to healthcare worker exposure. But it's not correct to assume that the lung is a sterile site at that time. The other thing I would say is that IL-6 is required for T-cell biology. It, for example, IL-6 stimulates a subset of CD4 T-cells called T-follicular helper cells, which stimulate B-cells in germinal centers to make antibodies. So this is not a concern in the CAR T-cell therapy. But in COVID therapy, this may be a concern because IL-6 may be important for generating neutralizing antibodies. And we may be blunting that response by giving tocilizumab. So right now, I favor clinical trial as a way to figure out whether IL-6 can benefit some patients. I know there have been anecdotal reports, but that is the quality of the evidence we have so far. And, you know, my observations over my career has been that, you know, yes, I want to do something for my patient. I feel that every day I treat my patients. But I think the mistake we often make as physicians is we give an experimental drug or a single arm study in a setting where a patient is very, very sick. And if the patient succumbs to the illness, we attribute it to the illness. If the Mm -hmm. patient survives, we attribute it to the experimental drug. And I don't think that we can assume that this is true. And we've learned that, for example, giving chloroquine is quite toxic to many patients who are receiving it. In fact, in Brazil, a study of chloroquine was halted due to cardiac deaths in the treatment. So we have Mm -hmm. to be very careful how we use these medications. They are certainly, if we can get 
evidence that the biologic process that they target is dysregulated, that at least provides some rationale for trying to use them. But we are trying very hard to do the right studies so that we can learn about the medications so that eventually can use them and intuit which patients may benefit and which patients do not. So let me ask you with that in mind, I'm, I'm actually, I'd love to hear more about what studies are you doing? And the reason I'm asking it is as a window into what's in your thinking about what might help. So tell us more. My thinking about what might help is a strategy that likely requires an antiviral agent and in specific patient scenarios combines it with an immunomodulatory agent. I think that is the paradigm that I have seen work before in infectious diseases. I can give you an example, one that leukemia and lymphoma treating physicians are very familiar with, pneumocystis pneumonia. So pneumocystis is obviously a fungus, and we have a very good drug for it, an antimicrobial Bactrim, and we combine mm -hmm. it with an immunomodulatory, a steroid, and that's the most effective way uh, to treat this disease. In infectious diseases, there is no instance that I can think of where an infection gets better when it is treated solely with an immunomodulatory strategy. That simply doesn't exist. I can't think of any instance where that is an effective strategy. So in terms of clinical trials, what I would really like to see advance are clinical trials where there is an antiviral strategy. So I'm very interested in learning how the remdesivir data, how that progresses. There is a single-arm study that was published in the New England Journal last week. I think it shows that administering the drug is safe, but it does not allow significant conclusions about patient benefit. And, and obviously, we're waiting for those studies. But I'm particularly excited, really, about medicines that have the capacity to block viral replication or block other aspects of the viral life cycle. And I think in some patients, they may also benefit from immune modulation. And so that a combined approach there, I think in the long run, is going to be the most effective. Well, I have to say, thinking back to even 10 minutes ago, we were talking about that this has been about four weeks since the first patients started arriving in our cancer center. So I have to say it's been, a, in a sense, a tremendous amount of progress and certainly very hard work on, on everyone's part. I wanted to ask you a very nuts and bolts question because I think it's important to have it in this podcast, but very basic, what protection should we provide for ourselves and for our patients as they enter the door of, of our cancer centers and our offices? Yeah, I think that's a question that is very much in flux as we understand more about the biology of the virus. We know that there is now a probably substantial part of the population who develops an infection with COVID and may have very few or very little symptoms as a result of this infection. And so we are obviously as a center and as a profession embracing telemedicine. I think one, the first most important principle is to limit patient and healthcare worker exposure. And so for example, non-essential visits should be postponed or converted to telemedicine visits. Obviously, there are many situations in which patients need to be seen and need to be treated. 
And in those instances, we try and limit the number of staff that see a patient and also ask patients to come by themselves or perhaps with a single family member in extraordinary circumstances. So limiting exposure, I think, is our first and most important way of combating the disease, both from the healthcare worker perspective and the patient perspective. But I think we're very fortunate in that many cancer patients, and certainly patients with leukemia and lymphoma, already know the art of social distancing even before the COVID-19 pandemic occurred because they tend to be a very highly educated group of patients who are very careful about having uh, social exposures when it's unclear what the health status is of their friends or family members. So I think that's helped us in a way because patients who have received transplants, leukemia, lymphoma, they already are good at social distancing, and we're good at social distancing when appropriate, even before this pandemic occurred. We know that wearing a mask certainly can reduce the risk of transmission. And today, my governor, Governor Cuomo, asked that everyone in our state wear a mask when they are outdoors and having interactions with other people. And so to conform to these uh, guidelines, I think wearing masks both on the patient side, so to protect the patient, and also on the provider side is the right thing to do. And from a provider perspective, wearing goggles or a face shield can fully protect mucous membrane. And so I think that, you know, hopefully we can get the PPE shortages ironed out very, very quickly. But to me, that would be the way forward in terms of limiting risk to patients and limiting risk to providers. Very good. Thank you. Many caregivers, myself included as an oncologist, have a, I think, a healthy concern about our own risk of exposure and your risk of exposure for that matter. Are colleagues asking you about it and what are you sort of sharing with them and what kind of support more generally do doctors, nurses, caregivers in oncology want and need at this time? It's a fantastic question. And of course, we're hearing a lot of questions from our colleagues at all levels of the healthcare tree. I'm very concerned for all the staff at my hospital, starting with the janitors and the cleaners, the cafeteria workers, the nurses, the advanced practice providers. I'm particularly concerned about physicians and healthcare workers who have direct contact with patient aerosols, particularly healthcare workers involved in intubation or doing procedures in which an aerosol is likely to be generated. And so for those individuals, we want to limit their exposure and take significant precautions to reduce their risk and to mitigate it as much as we can. For example, we are not using nebulized medications unless they are life-sustaining just to prevent aerosols from forming in patient rooms. We have special oxygenation and intubation protocols that are designed to minimize risk of transmission to healthcare workers. I think it's also very important in cancer populations for primary oncologists to have honest discussions with their patients 
about their goals of care. I think this is a very, very important way in which the medical community can contribute to this pandemic because if patients do not wish to be intubated, we have ways of treating them and giving them high flow oxygen and supporting them and alleviating their symptoms. But that is a very, very important discussion to have and one that we're having on a much more frequent basis with our patients in New York City. And that's all with the goal of harmonizing patient care, but also to uh, reduce uh, healthcare worker exposure. We also have established ways for healthcare workers to be in contact with mental health professionals at our center and citywide because the emotional toll and of this illness is, is obviously significant. I think one of the most cruel aspects of COVID-19 is that it forces us away from our patients and away from our families. And it goes against human nature and it goes against what we were taught in medical school or nursing school. And it's very, very difficult for families. The loneliness and the solitude that comes with treating patients and being the healthcare provider, I think is one of the most challenging aspects of this epidemic. So by the way, I want to thank you for sharing that because I think it is something that I know I feel personally and heard friends and colleagues talk about as well. Can you say any more about the emotional experience? I think you've been doing this for many years and there's been other waves of epidemics. And can you share about your own experience if you would? Sure. I mean, I think like many of us, this is the first true global pandemic that I have witnessed as a medical professional. I had not yet entered medicine as a profession when the HIV-AIDS pandemic swept across the globe in the early 80s. And pandemics are a feature of human history, you know, and human infectious diseases that recur, but not often enough for each generation to have witnessed more than one or two. And so each pandemic, like an earthquake or a volcano, is a profoundly traumatic event. And, you know, myself and our colleague, we not only have to fight the pandemic with the tools that we have at hand, but also recognize the toll that it places on us as healthcare workers, on our families, and on our patients. And so there is a medical component to this, but there's also very much a psychological component that is equally important and to recognize and to address as we find ourselves in a situation that none of us imagined we would be a year ago. I want to ask you two other questions. One is, uh, I guess, truth or myth, or maybe somewhere in between. A patient's family asked me the other day about ventilators, and basically, are they making some patients worse? Truth, myth, in between? I think that ventilators are a very important strategy to treat severe cases of the disease. I think experience we've had so far is that many patients need to be on ventilators for a long period of time, and unfortunately, a large proportion of patients on ventilators ultimately succumb to COVID-19. But I do not think it's correct to draw the conclusion that the clinical demise or the failure of ventilator to rescue a patient are due to the ventilator itself. It's due to the COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. And one last, is the curve flattening? Uh, we've all been talking about the curve. And what are you seeing in New York City? 
Well, in New York City, there have been some hopeful signs in the past week. I can speak about my own hospital, but I think some of the observations I'll make are broadly applicable to many other hospitals in New York City in that we are now at a plateau phase in terms of the number of inpatients and in terms of the number of patients in critical care. And I think that's really a testament to how New Yorkers and residents of the country have responded to social distancing guidelines. The curves in the United States are individual for many different areas. The West Coast seems to be the furthest along, so the Seattle and San Francisco area, they've had a longer time under the social distancing guidelines, and so there may have already crested. In New York City, we are hopefully at the top of the mountain and we will head down again, but we also know that other cities in the United States have not yet reached their peak, and so we obviously want social distancing guidelines to continue because it's our most effective weapon against this pandemic. Very good. Absolutely. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this informative and timely podcast. I particularly want to thank uh, Dr. Tobias Hall, who's the Chief of the Infectious Disease Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. Dr. Hall, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was my pleasure to speak with you, and I work with a lot of leukemia and lymphoma doctors, and uh, they're really dear and trusted colleagues. For more information on how LLS is supporting blood cancer patients during the COVID-19 pandemic, or for any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. And for a listing of all of our healthcare professional podcasts, continuing education activities, and healthcare professional resources, please visit www.lls.org forward slash CE. Again, thank you for joining us for this important conversation. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.